Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Oh, what's up? How are we doing, church? Good? Hey, like you said, we're starting a series called You Asked For It, and it is uh, based on the premise of you guys submitting your questions uh, that we can take, take the time then to answer in church. I, I think oftentimes, and I especially remember being like a 20-ish year old in the church, feeling like, like the level of knowledge in the church had surpassed where I was at. And yet there's not really a good context for you to bring up questions sometimes. Like you're not just gonna raise your hand on a Sunday morning and be like, okay, wait, can you stop right there for a moment? Can you explain what you just said? Like we don't, we don't always do this and sometimes we feel like people have moved on past us and I should know that. It's embarrassing, I don't know that. So we don't, we don't answer the questions we have. And yet all, all too often, like we have similar questions and so we just gotta create maybe an anonymous way for you to submit those questions, which you can still do. You can still jump on gschurch.info, fill out a question. And what we're gonna try and do over the next seven weeks, that's how long we foresee being in this series, is seven weeks. And that'll take us right up until, until Advent. Come on, somebody. Who's ready for Christmas up in this place today? Yeah, um, I love I love Christmas. But so, um, anyways, that we're we're gonna take some themes, right? We can't answer every question in that seven weeks, but we're gonna hopefully draw some circles around some themes and put some together in messages, so we can hopefully get like really practical over these next few weeks and just answer some of the questions that I think a lot of us have on our minds or have on our hearts. And so, really, the first question that we're tackling today um, is it is the question. Question. Like it's the question that we stake everything on and every answer that we come up with for the rest of this series will have somewhat to do what we established today in this message. And that is, can I trust my Bible? Can I trust my Bible? Like that is, that is such a fundamental question for us to be able to articulate because every question that we're gonna ask about our faith, about our life, ultimately is gonna be driven back to this book. So can we trust it? And before we just spout off the Sunday school answer, yes, and trust my Bible, yes and amen, right? Like, and praise God that's in some of you that you just have this like inherent trust in the scriptures. But like our kids, as they're growing up and as they're wrestling to make their faith their own, they're gonna need more than just a blind yes. The world and our coworkers around us are gonna need more than just a emphatic yes with no real meaning or substance behind it. So hopefully what we're going to do today is we're going to be able to look at some of the facts of who made our Bible, who wrote it, how did it get put together, how did some books get in and how did some books not get in, like where did it come from? But then hopefully like my aim is that we wouldn't just like learn a lot of information about the Bible because a lot of information, what it can tend to do is make your head about this big and make it really hard for you to get into doors and stuff. And so rather what I would love to do is to see all of this information drive towards something and that would be a heart that is fond of scripture and fond of the person who wrote it, amen? And so uh, that is gonna take not just information from me, it's gonna take revelation from the Holy Spirit. And so I thought the best thing that we could do right now is pray. So let's just pray for a moment real quick and we'll jump right into it. Jesus we just ask, like Paul writes in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he says, open the eyes of their heart that they may see. And so God, I pray that in all of us today, there would be a, a softening in our hearts, a softening in our mind to receive your truth today, that you would open our ears, open our eyes to be able to see the truth that is in front of us today. 
God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would spotlight or would reveal something of significance for us today. Maybe something that we don't even need for ourselves. Maybe a bit of information we need for a coworker, a friend that we're going to have a conversation with. Would you just touch us with something that we need to hear today, Lord? Not again, just for our own uh, information's sake, so that we might be really smart or pass some Bible tests that we take on Facebook, Lord, but that we would actually love your word, that we would love scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, we're going to dive right in. I'm just going to warn you, it's going to be like a lot of information at the top. So if you need to go get more coffee, it's too late. Like you're going to miss some of it if you step out. So just prop your eyes open, slap your face around a little bit or something so you can stay focused. All right. All right, so your Bible is, is this book I have in front of me here. Obviously, you know that, but it's, it's 66 different books all put together and arranged in two different testaments. Okay, so you have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament. And I think most of us have a basic understanding of that, but what's helpful to note is that that word testament means a law or means a person's will. And it's oftentimes translated also into English as the word covenant, so, so you can think of the delineation between the Old and New Testament delineating the Old and New Covenant. So the Old Testament is primarily going to be about humanity's origins, but more specifically than that, it's going to be about the nation of Israel and their origin and Father Abraham and how, they, how he had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham and I'm one of them, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. So, but more than that, it's going to be the story of how Israel uh, was invited into God's presence and how they messed up quite a bit. You don't think you would include that if you were writing your own history book. Usually history is told from the winners and Israel lost a lot, and yet they included a lot of that in their scripture for us. And, and so the Old Testament's going to capture the story of really the law and the prophets and how God is bringing himself back to his creation through a system of sacrifices and a system of laws and rules in which people can be reconciled to God. Now, the New Testament, on the other hand, is going to be ushering in God's age of grace with the person of Jesus. And so the first four books of your New Testament are all going to be four um, like camera angles telling one story on the person of Jesus and who he was and the life he lived and what he did while he was here on the earth. And it's going to, they're going to capture his, his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven. But really, the primary bit of the New Testament, like most of it, is going to be letters written by a guy named Paul and some other letters that are in included in there too, written to encourage and written to uh, teach and, and, and bolster up churches and individuals, all that lived within that time of Jesus. And so, yes, those are what make the New and the Old Testament distinct in their nature. Like we sang in the song, King of Kings, like, and the church of Christ was born. That happens after the ascension of Jesus. You have the church now where there's this, there's this age of grace where Jew and Gentile alike are invited into God's presence. And so even though they are unique in that way, they are also together in the way that they tell one story. It's all just the story of God coming back to his creation. Uh, if you could reduce the message of the Bible down to three words, they would be God with us. How in the beginning in Genesis, you see Adam and Eve in the garden with God. 
And once that is taken away from them because of sin, because of the, the consequences of sin, then you have the, the Old Testament where it all establishes how God is creating a system so that we could be back with him. And then once it's seen that humankind is going to fail over and over and over again, even with the right system, Jesus is going to become and he shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And then in Revelation, when this all ends at the very end of time, when God consummates everything and when he renews the world and he renews heaven and earth, it's so that the saints may be with God forever. So that is the message of scripture. And it's, it's like I said, it's 66 different books all telling that one story. That one story. It's written by several different authors. Most of them we know, some of them we don't. Like we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Dude didn't sign his name on the top of the paper before he turned it into the teacher. Like, I don't know what happened there, but some authors we know, some authors we don't, but it's also written in different, like so many different literary forms. And you have to know that some of it is written as testimony, eyewitness account. Some of it is written as historical documentation. Some of it is written, like I said, as a letter being sent to encourage, to build up, to warn other believers. Some of it is written as poetry. Some is written as song. A lot of it is written as prophecy, predicting something that has not happened yet, which we'll talk a little bit more about the, when we talk about the Old Testament, how beautiful prophecy becomes. But so there's 27 books in the New Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament. Um, and here is what Paul is going to say about scripture, just in general, when he writes to Timothy, he says, all scripture is God breathed out by, it's, it's breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So scripture is given to us for our benefit in all areas of our life. It is profitable for you. And it's also, I, I love that Paul writes, it's for reproof and for correction. Like, aren't you thankful that God isn't just a God of reproof? No, don't do that. No, that was wrong. Not that way. Nope, that was, nope, don't do that. Don't do that. Nope, oh, hey, whoa, no, again? No, stop that. But he's also a God of correction. So, so you can think of this. I heard a pastor say it this week that he's kind of like the ultimate player's coach where he says, no, you're doing it this way. Don't do it that way. Do it this way. So he also offers us correction. He, off, he also demonstrates and models for us what it should look like. So he's not just constantly reproving. He's also saying, don't do that. Do this instead. And so all of scripture, scripture is breathed out by God. But here is what the author of Hebrews, again, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. A lot of people think it's Paul. A lot of really, people, small, a lot of really smart people don't think it's Paul. But here's what it says in Hebrews chapter four is that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's important to note that yes, we read our Bible, but our Bible also reads us. Like, let's just do a quick survey around the room. If you have read a, a chunk of scripture before that didn't stand out to you, and then years or just maybe in a different season, you read that very same scripture, something you've already read a hundred times maybe, and all of a sudden it's lit up to you. Anybody, raise your hand if that's happened to you. Okay, so look around the room. Like, this, this is not just some old book. It's a living and active word that's being breathed out by God so that we might have a means to be trained up and built up in the way of Jesus. And, but I think 
there's a few different misconceptions about our Bible that we have to work through. Because even right off the bat, it's like, well, who wrote it? Who wrote the Bible? Because Austin, I just heard you say that man wrote it, and yet it's also breathed by God. So it's the inerrant word of God written by imperfect people. Never thought of that. How do those things, two things go together? It's a perfect word written by imperfect people. And the right answer is how Peter captures it. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So, so it was never just exerted by human effort that a prophecy came about, that a word came about, that a word of scripture was written down. It was never just by man's effort, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, that word picture for carried along, I think of it like with my two-year-old Haven. We have this rule right now with Haven. She's kind of our rebellious one, so you could pray for us, please. Uh, she's not allowed into the street at all unless she's holding a hand. So it doesn't matter if we're in the Walmart parking lot, doesn't matter if we're crossing the street to get the mail and there's no cars within sight, we're in the street, Haven holds a hand. That, that's just what we say over and over again. We're in the street, Haven holds a hand. Now you think about this, where when I'm holding her hand, she's not actually holding my hand, like I'm holding hers. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, I'm not letting go of her hand, even try she might to wiggle her little fingers out of my hand, but like I'm holding her hand and where we're going across the street, like our course is set. I have determined where we're gonna go. Like I, I am setting the direction. She is not gonna veer off the path with which I choose for her. You see that? But she is also doing the walking herself. So she is being carried about across the street by me. I am setting the course. I am in control of the direction, but she is still doing the walking. So, so the authors of the Bible were not kind of caught up in some trance where all of a sudden the Bible was just being, you know, God was like moving their hand for them as they wrote the words down. But it was men full of the Holy Spirit expressing and capturing the very heart of God on a paper. And you might say to yourself like, well, well why didn't God just write the Bible? Sometimes don't you almost think that would be easier? Like, why didn't God just write it and put all this debate to rest, Right? Like you think we wouldn't debate about it if it was really God's or not. But, but let's just say for a sec, it was actually God's, God's writing. And so how beautiful is it that, that God chose to reveal himself, to provide a revelation, to provide a, a bit of who he is to us through means with which we can relate. So Paul, when he's writing, captures all these very human emotions like Peter, when he betrays Jesus and then he's re-offered his love three times. Like, like these are moments that capture our humanity. And so I just think it's wonderful that the God of Scripture, even though he is perfect and blameless, uses imperfect people to capture us and to reveal himself to us. So it's, it's different literary forms. It's written over the span of about 1,500 years, all these different authors, and, and it's all telling this story. But together, we have to know that all of it is inspired by God, written down by men, capturing the very heart of God, not, not missing a word that he intended to put in here. That's what it is. But like, how did we get it? I think that's an, like, it's another misconception. Um, like, Maybe you don't think this, but maybe some of your friends think this. Like, well, wasn't the Bible just put together by a bunch of like church guys, like, you know, years after Jesus and the, the church leaders just kind of got together and they said, okay, well, here's scripture. And, and on some level, like society and culture is going to think that scripture was created by the institution of the church to either manipulate us into a certain behavior, to get money, to build themselves up in power. 
right? There's kind of that perception about scripture out there that it's just an instrument used by the church to suppress people or to build themselves up. And, and really, that's, that's not at all what we see when we look at where the Bible came from historically. And what we're talking about when you're saying, how did we get to that Bible? You're talking about the word or the idea of canon, the canon of scripture. Canon is, so like, you think about it this way. If I, if I wrote a book, that would be the beginning of my canon, of, my, of, the author, of the authorship that I'm writing. And then if I wrote 15 books throughout my life and then I died, like you couldn't add to that canon, it's set. What I wrote is set. Canon is also the standard. It's also known as like the, the measuring tape, the, the ruler at which we measure. And the measurements for how things got into canon was were they consistent with other New Testament teachings and did they have a firsthand account with the person of Jesus? That's why we get the word canon. That's what you need to think of when we think of canon. Now, but what's interesting is how we got the canon of the Old Testament, the 39 books in the Old Testament, and how we got to the canon of the New Testament, the 27 books there, are quite different. They're quite different. The Old Testament canon, those books, also known as the Hebrew Bible, were the books that Jewish priests and the people of Israel determined were their sacred texts. They were, they were determined and that, was, that list was set and sealed before Jesus was ever born. And so all of those 39 books, even though they wouldn't have been in book format, they were in scrolls. So there weren't 39 scrolls because we have in our book the delineation between like 1st and 2nd Samuel. But in scrolls, it would have just been the scroll of Samuel. But the content that, that they would have laid up in the temple... Prior to Jesus being born, the priest, the Jewish priest would have set in the temple as sacred text is the same content that we have in our Old Testament today. So not like, why don't we have certain books and why, why uh, like first and second Maccabees, you might be, have like a Catholic background. Why does that Bible look different? Well, those books were added in later reflecting off of this thing called the Septuagint, which we don't have all the time to go into it. It's the Greek translation that Septuagint in Greek literally means the word 72, 72 Greek dudes translated that old Hebrew Bible into Greek. And, and what the Catholic Church did somewhere around the Council of Trent is they added some books back in. They determined these books were back in there. But what we're using, what we're recognizing as our Protestant Bibles would be what the Jewish people used prior to the time of Jesus. Make sense? Now, so what's incredible about that is that all of the writings, the prophetic writings, predicting how Jesus was going to be born, what he was going, like where he was going to be born, how he was going to die. All of these things are prophesied about in the Old Testament. And that writing is sealed and set and inked down hundreds of years before he ever walked on the planet. So you have all these Old Testament prophecies that were, that were put down on paper, inked away before Jesus ever set foot on the earth. And, and I wish we had the time to go into just even the statistical significance of all the prophetic things coming true with Jesus. It's insane just how much it lines up with exactly what happened, predicting it hundreds of years in advance. So that's the Old Testament canon. Like I said, New Testament canon is different. New Testament canon, I think a lot of us, again, in our minds, we kind of have this thought that like, it was a bunch of like old dudes, they were probably wearing robes, they're probably in this temple and it was like filled with smoke or something. And they were like, let's pick these books for the Bible. Like these are the ones we like the most. 
we don't really like those ones. Uh, that guy's crazy. Like, uh, he's got some weird stuff in his, so let's just pick these ones. But actually, like, modern scholarship is proving to us that those 27 books of the New Testament were seen and recognized as authoritative by the apostles themselves in the time of Jesus and immediately following his death. So you got to remember, your Bible was, was kind of built and wrote by, like, the guy Paul, who's writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. And as he writes that letter to the church in Ephesus, he's writing with an authoritative perspective. He's writing with this mind that like, this is scripture. Peter is then quoting Paul at times and he's saying, like the Holy Scripture that Paul is writing to you. So the New Testament authors are all quoting and referencing each other using that as scripture, using that as the word of God. So it was not that your Bible was formed thousands of years removed from the person of Jesus, but the very people who knew and walked with Jesus personally were using and writing these letters together, acknowledging that they were the very words of God. And that's how they wrote. That's how they interacted. That's how they saw the letters that they were writing to each other. That's how they saw their documentation of their accounts of Jesus, knowing that they were authoritative words captured from Jesus, written down in paper to encourage and edify the church. So it wasn't just a bunch of dudes sitting around picking which ones they thought would be best. The other criticism that we'll run into with the Bible is that, well, isn't the Bible kind of like that elementary school game telephone? Do you know what I mean? Where it's like you give the one kid a phrase at the very beginning and he has to whisper it to the next kid and she whispers at the next kid. And then it's like something completely different by the, end, by the end of the line here. And haven't you ever heard from somebody who's skeptical of the Bible? Well, isn't it just like it was translated into this language, into this language, and then it was translated again, translated again, translated again, until we finally got here? And how can we even trust that that is still what the original authors intended to be in there? Right? We hear this about the Bible, and, and what you have to understand is there are 5,700 ancient manuscripts of the Bible that we have found so far. So let me explain what I mean by that. Some of the manuscripts that we found, so uh, ancient writings, like the oldest one, I think it's called P P59 or P49, I can't remember which one it is, but it is, it is a front and back page from the book of John. One page, it's about the size of a credit card. And it's not the original writing of John, but it's dated somewhere around 100 AD that that was, that that was written. So it's written so close to, probably copied immediately from the original. Immediately from the original. So now that's one manuscript that we have. There are 5,700 manuscripts that we found. Not none of the original writings, but all within a lifespan of Jesus were these writings that are starting to be found and put together. Now, so here's the problem that some people have with that is they think, okay, well, you have this manuscript here, this manuscript here. They're both from Romans. And, and, and this manuscript in Romans 1.1 has this word and this manuscript in Romans 1.1 has a different word. So what do we do with that? That's called a textual variance in ancient manuscripts. So stick with me, okay? Because there's this guy named Bart Ehrman. How many of you have heard of Bart Ehrman? He's like a modern day uh, uh, New Testament critic, okay? He's like probably the most scholared New Testament critic that we have. Uh, he's, he wrote the book, Misquoting Jesus, where he says there's actually more textual variances in the New Testament writings than we actually have words in the New Testament. So Bart Ehrman, he's a, he calls himself a happy agnostic. He's a professor at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So that's all the more reason to root for Duke. You know what I'm saying? Come on, Coach K all the way. Okay, never mind. None of you care. 
So there's all these textual variances. And at first you're like, wait, I thought this was supposed to reinforce my trust in the Bible today. Pastor, you're still, you tell me, how many, how many textual variances do you think there are? How many? Anyone want to guess? There's about 120,000 words in the New Testament. Uh, we have about, like I said, 5,700 ancient manuscripts, totaling 2.5 million ancient pages of scripture. It's impressive. It's a ton of work. How many textual variances do you think there are? Spout it off, spout it off, someone. 37, 400,000, 2 million. That was, that, was, that was a huge number. 400,000 textual variances. 99.4 to 99.7% of them, scholars have determined, don't actually change the meaning of the text. They're either misspelled words or different word order. So instead of them writing the big black dog, they wrote the big dog that was black or that dog that was both big and black. Right? There's word order that plays on that. And you're like, well, okay, if it's, if it's this, this is kind of how my thinking goes. If, if, if Paul writes a letter to the church of Good Shepherd, right? And we got to kind of detach ourselves from the internet age that we live in where we can just access a blog anytime or look at, you know, you version and find 16 different versions of your Bible within like five seconds. That's not how it was. Paul writes this letter to a church and we get it and we're psyched. I start reading it, but immediately a scribe starts writing down what I'm saying. And then they look at the letter and they go, okay, I'm going to write down all that stuff that you just said. Because we want to keep a copy here before we send it over to Rez, before we send it over to Matt Brown down at Redemption. We're going we're gonna to make a copy and then we're going to send it away. And so it, it, like, it's human error that puts like the wrong spelling of a name. Oh, you don't think they'd spell the name wrong. Here's, here, check this out. I found this meme a while back. Here are 135 different ways to spell Caitlin just to ruin your day. And maybe you can't see that, but it's legit. There are 135 different ways to spell Caitlin. And most of them, I'm like, you know, like I've seen that before. It makes sense that some of them would be spelling errors. Like I said, uh, scholars, historians agree. 99.4 to 99.7% of the 400,000 variances have no impact on the meaning of scripture. But some, some do impact the meaning of scripture. For example, does anyone have an ESV Bible, like a paper Bible just on them? Okay, uh, we're not going to do this right now, but if I were to say to you, Taylor, pull up John, John 5, 4, you can look in your own Bible because this will be shocking for you. John 5, 4 is not in your ESV Bible. It's not there. It goes from 5, 3 to 5, 5. I was so mad when I found that out this week. I was like, are you kidding me? I'm missing a whole verse. And it's the verse, it's the story of the pool of Bethesda and how the, the angel would come down and stir up the pool and the first person into it would be healed. And that sentence right there is not in the earliest manuscripts. So it seriously changes the meaning of that story, does it not? But it does not change the, like, the theology of which we're building the New Testament on. So here, like John 8 is another classic example. I'm not going to turn to it, but you know the story, the woman caught in adultery. Right? And it's this beautiful story. You love, you've probably heard it before. The woman's brought in. She's, she's brought in in front of, she's caught in the act of adultery, brought in in front of all these guys. Jesus bends down in the sand. He's writing something. We like to pretend like we know what he was writing, but we have no idea. Scripture doesn't even say. And so he's writing something in the sand. And then one at a time, the guys from oldest to youngest start to leave the room until they're all gone. Jesus picks up her face and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And he says, there are none. Go and sin no more. And it's a beautiful story. But in my Bible, if you look at it, John chapter 8, starting at verse 1, that's actually 7, like 57, it's not in the earliest manuscript. So there's an asterisk and it says, this is not included. That's a huge textual variance that gets counted, right? Yet it does not impact who Jesus was, 
It doesn't impact his, it doesn't impact his deity. It doesn't impact his, his crucifixion. It doesn't impact his perfect blemish-free life. It doesn't impact the fact that he was the son of God, that he paid the price for our sin, that he rose, that he was uh, triumphant in his victory over death and sin in the grave, that he's seated now in heaven. It doesn't impact the things that we theologically conclude from the New Testament. So like what we believe about the New Testament is completely held intact across these 5,700 documents that we found regarding the New Testament. Historians all agree the, the work, the ancient manuscript work and like available documents that we have from the Bible are unprecedented compared to any ancient text that we would ever find. Because there's two things that make an ancient text valuable. It's the amount of manuscripts that you find, so the amount of copies that you find, but it's not good enough just to find a bunch of copies all from one place. So they say to like validate a historical document, you need a ton of copies and you need to spread out as far as possible. And your Bible has, chunks of your Bible have been found all over Europe and Asia and Northern Africa, like all over the Middle East. In fact, most of the archaeological discoveries that have happened in the last 100 years around Israel, do you know how they found those things? They use the Bible as a roadmap. That's how accurate it's held historically. So it's, and it's not just this, like, we don't ha we have all these, all these, like, one generation off the original copies, and they're not in these like crazy languages we've never heard before. It's written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek. It's written in Aramaic. And so when we're translating to our English version of our Bible, we're taking it one off, one language off into English. It's not translated from this one to this one to this one to this one and lost in the trend. We're taking some of these documents that we found and we're putting them right into your English Bible. Now, so, okay, here's just a good helpful bit of information. Like why do we have so many different English versions of our Bible? Here's this great graphic that maybe will bring some clarity to this. You have a spectrum that all of your Bible translations exist on, and they're somewhere between a word-for-word -word translation and a thought-for-thought -thought translation. So the NASB and the ESV and the King James Version are all going to be on this side of word-for-word, -word, as in it's taking the Greek, it's taking the Hebrew, and it's translating it right into English. Now, sometimes that doesn't make for the most cohesive thoughts or sentences in our modern English language. So you have the birth of the NIV and the NLT, the New International Version, the New Living Translation. Maybe you read out of that. And that is taking this whole sentence in the original Greek and saying, here's what the author's trying to communicate. And it's saying that whole sentence in English. So it's taking the whole thought that's concluded and translating that into English. Now, what you, if you could blow this out to go either way, on the left-hand side of NASB would be like an interlinear, where you literally look at, okay, here's the Greek word, here's the English word, here's the Hebrew word, here's the English word. And on the far end of a thought for thought would be the message, the message where, where it's just Eugene Peterson rewriting the Bible in his own words. Now, here's what I'll say. Like, I'm not knocking the message. I'm not knocking uh, NIRV. My, the, the Bibles we handed out to first graders just a few weeks back are NIRV because they're written at a third grade reading level for my third grader. So it's helpful. I would just say, like, it's always best to look at them both. But I, I remember sitting down with this kid. He was like 20 years old, just hungry as I'll get out to get into scripture. And he was like, man, it's just, it's so dry for me. Like I just, I'm having a hard time really understanding what it's saying. And I just, I want to learn more. So we sat down and my, my go-to book with new believers is always the book of John. Like, hey, let's just read through the gospel of John. We're going to get a really good picture of who Jesus is if we know John. And so I'm like, let's read the gospel of John. And he was like, where's John? 
It's like, okay, yeah, we got some work to do. Table of contents here. New Testament starts here, John here, right? Like that's trying to teach him like how it's even oriented, how the Bible's all put together. And then I'm like, okay, why don't you read to me the first few verses that stood out to you? And uh, he starts reading and it's the King James Version. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I don't even hardly understand the King James Version. Like I know a lot of you maybe grew up with that text and you're really familiar with it and you love it and that's awesome. I'm not saying you should abandon it. I'm just saying, I'm like, dude, start with the message. Like Eugene Peterson has this way of writing where it just breaks down these thoughts and they're really easy to understand. And then once you get a grasp of the, the message translation, like flip over and see what the ESV or the NASB has to say about it. All of that together, though, is not us like retranslating the Bible through this whole like uh, just inefficient or crazy process. It's, it's writers, scholars looking at the original language and putting it in an English version that you and I can understand. There's actually been uh, more translation work just globally because of Christians' efforts to put the Bible into every language. That's a fascinating thing just to learn about is that like we have access to so many languages simply because Christians have seen the need to put the Bible into every language. That's a creative minority thing, but that's last series, not this series. So let's keep going. Um, so we don't need to be afraid of textual variances. We don't need to be afraid of this idea that like the, the Bible was put together by the church in some way or in some effort to control you. Um, but here's, here's what I want to do more than anything. More than I am a New Testament scholar or a scholar on canon, more than I am an archaeologist, as sweet as I think it would be to be Indiana Jones, um, that's, that's not who I am. Like I'm a pastor. And so what I want to encourage you with is that uh, we... we need to, we need to make space in our routine for coming to God's book. Because, because what you think about God's book, how, your natural mental posture towards the Bible actually reveals a lot about what's in your heart with your faith. So if you're consistently looking at scripture and you're critical or you're, you're wondering that couldn't possibly be true and you're, kind of, you're always doing these gymnastics and you have, some, you have some people that'll kind of even help lead you in these thoughts in our modern world. You have guys like Rob Bell who's trying to say, I can't imagine a God who would create a hell. You have, you have people like Rachel Held Evans who have taken this position that God would never say that in regard to sexuality. He would never feel that way. And then they go to the Bible and try and re reinforce their opinions. And so what we must be diligent in is we do not come to find our opinions reinforced or validated in this book. We come to let this book bear its weight on us. Amen. That like that, just so you are aware, like that we're all, all of our chips are in on the Bible at this church. And so, yes, we're going to walk through over the next several weeks through some questions and some tough questions but we're always going to come back to what does this book have to say? What is this? What, what are the things that are in here for me to impact my life? I, I think it's, it's just pivotal for us to be aware of the fact that even if there was some new book that was written about who Jesus was and what he's done, like, yes, we love like what's written in scripture. And yes, we come to this and we're hungry for it, but it's not just so that we can stuff our minds full of all of this theology. Like we're coming to this book so that we might become greater and greater in a deeper and deeper relationship with the person of Jesus. 
That, that, that's why we have to know theology. And I think sometimes in church circles, we lend ourselves to wanting to have all these theological conversations. So we want to get around a table and we want to talk about eschatology and we want to argue with our friends and we want to sound really smart with all these theological positions. We want to quote Piper and we want to, you know, pull all these other quotes into the conversation. And, and I'm all for that unless we are neglecting to step into the world with what this book has impressed on us. So, so like, yes, this book forms us, but we have to also be aware that that formation is supposed to carry us out into the culture that we're living in. Because if you're so, like, always having a theology conversation with books, oh, like, or with, <laughs> with books, uh, over coffee about books, and that's all you're talking about all the time, like, don't let your love for theology overcome your love for the world. Like, I, I love, I could talk theology all day, but like, that's, that's not the main point of this book is so that we can articulate our positions really well. The point of this book is so that we might have our mind renewed, so that we might have our desires transformed, so that we might fall all the more in love and plant ourselves as close as we possibly can to the river of life. That's, that's what we're after here. And, and so as much as like the theology and the things that we can conclude out of this are important, we can never detach them from a human experience. So that when people at some point, like if you haven't heard people be critical of the Bible recently, I would just wonder what you're doing. Like, do you just live under an actual rock? Like not have a phone, not have a TV? Like people out there are being critical of the Bible and they don't need to meet a bunch of people who know all the answers from this book. They need to meet somebody who's been transformed by the Holy Spirit to come on in and, and to, to understand the impact and the significance that this book has on our lives. So, so I'm hoping what we accomplished today is given, has give, given you some conversation engagers with people who are critical of the Bible and you can answer the skeptic a little bit, but more than anything else, what I hope to do is just incite a little bit of love in us for scripture. And so with that, I just wanna read a few verses out of Psalm 119. And I would love for you to just write down Psalm 119. It's a long psalm, all right? But, but you, with the Lord, this week, can read the whole thing. I am very confident in that. Get yourself a message if you have to, a message version, okay? And read that. But I'm gonna read just a few verses uh, out of 119. I'm gonna start in verse 25 and I'll end in verse 40. And it's not gonna be on the screen, okay? And so if you have a Bible, you can read along or you can just kind of close your eyes and, and take yourself there. Starting in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told you of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commands, commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give me life. I told students all the time when I was in student ministry, um, 
I think the Bible right now, culture is trying to cast this picture of the Bible that it's really just there to ruin your fun. It's really just there to kind of control your life or to make sure you fall, fit in a certain way. And certainly if you go out into culture, you go out to your workplace and you say, I love this book. This is the best book I've ever read. You're gonna be called all sorts of different names. Most of them not good, right? And yet we somehow have to redefine in our own hearts that this book is not to keep us from life. It's to steer us towards it. And, and so I used to say all the time, um, you know, saying that the Bible is just there to ruin your fun is kind of like saying the instruction manual in a chainsaw is just there to ruin your fun. <laughs> yet if you went and bought a chainsaw from Home Depot, you would never look at that instruction manual that it came with and you go, ah, oh, this instruction manual, it's just to keep me from having a good time with this chainsaw. No, like the instruction manual is trying to keep your leg attached to your body. You know what I'm saying? And so this book is far more than just some ancient set of rules. It's, it's this living, active, breathing word that should shape and inform every part of who we are. Amen? Go ahead and stand up, church. I'm going to pray for you. Jesus, uh, just like we prayed in the beginning, Lord, we pray it again, and we just ask that your Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts. Uh, God, that this wouldn't just be some sort of intellectual ascent that we're on, trying to climb up and learn all the things that we possibly can without you actually impacting our hearts. And so I pray, Lord, that we'd be stirred up by way of affection. We'd be stirred up by way of reminder of just how good your word is. And would you draw us to it now this week? Don't let this just be something that we talk about on Sunday, Lord. Let this impact the rest of our week now and put a hunger, put a craving in us for your word this week. Jesus, we love you and we need you in that process, Holy Spirit. So we say, come right now. Come, Holy Spirit, open us up. Help us to see the value and the beauty in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.